The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. It's Wednesday, April the 24th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With me in studio today, our political editor, Pat Leahy, our deputy political editor, Fia Kelly, and political scientist and polling expert, Kevin Cunningham. Later on, we are going to be discussing whether Fianna Fáil has stolen a march on Fine Gael in building bridges with potential future coalition partners. But first of all, Kevin is one of the authors of a new report about the shape of the next European Parliament and the political implications of that. Kevin Cunningham, you're very welcome to the podcast. We have you in today because uh, I have a report in front of me here, which I think was published yesterday, uh, which offers some projections about what's going to happen in the European Parliament elections. Yeah. Um, so we did this report for the European Council on Foreign Relations. Um, it produced some interesting results. I mean, we know uh, in European politics, uh, there's a lot of change going on. We hear kind of big headlines, a bit different, uh, the rise of the far right in loads of different countries. Um so these European projections um, kind of show that consolidated on the European level. They show essentially a 5% increase in those kind of far-right parties um, across Europe. That's relatively small, obviously, because at a European level, things are averaged out. Just to kind of give the broad picture, sure. there's a number of different uh, parties in the European uh, Parliament. There's the Christian Democrats, which are essentially Fine Gael, uh, Angela Merkel, uh, Silvio Berlusconi used to be in this group. Nicolas Sarkozy used to be in this group. They were on 29% uh, in 2014 and now they're likely to get around 24%. So they're down about 5%. Uh, the socialist group will be the next biggest group. They're kind of all the Labour parties, all uh, social democrat parties. They usually have a logo that includes a rose or something red. Uh, they're also down uh, 6%. So they're down from 25 to 19%. So that kind of centrist block uh, has lost its majority for the first time in European history. And they have essentially ruled the roost for the they last have, few they decades. Have. And because uh, they usually... Can, not, yeah. not, not, not together usually, but they had a majority that could get appointments through or anything if necessary. Exactly. And they're both very pro-European. They're both so pro-European, yeah. even though they were the one ying to the others yang, they also cooperated on big stuff, right? Yeah, and, and crucially, because uh, most of the prime ministers of the leading countries, you know, apart from Britain, obviously, were in these two blocks, they could ensure that because everything in the European Parliament has to pass through both the Parliament and the, and the Council itself, they could make sure and manage policy. But because uh, now uh, it's, it's only Angela Merkel, really, who's, who's in the... Uh, European People's Party and the Christian Democrat group, then they're going to have quite a lot of difficulties. So, Um, I mean, that's been the traditional two poles of mainstream European politics, Christian Democrats and Social Democrats. And as we know, they've both been being squeezed over the last several years, particularly Social Democrats, I think. But obviously there are people who aren't in either of those, like Emmanuel Macron, who would be a centrist. Exactly, exactly. So the two groups that have increased, you've got this kind of far-right group of, it's kind of broken down into the European Conservatives and Reformists, which is kind of the Tory Conservative Party, the European Europeans of Freedom and Direct Democracy, which is kind of UKIP. 
the Europe, Europe of Nations and Freedom, which is uh, Front National. So there's lots of different groups. They I, can he- I can hear our listeners' eyes starting to glaze Sorry, over. Yeah. Such a thing is audible. Not your fault, but the fault of the, just the, the whole system here. Uh, you know, all these endless acronyms. They don't have memorable names. Mm. The names don't seem to connect to the parties who are actually standing in, in national elections. Uh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's certainly uh, it's it's a, it's a step away from the public's uh, uh, perceptions of of what's going on. Um, absolutely, uh, it's but, very. But, but it's also, yeah. I think, it's reflective of the fracturing of European politics in the post-economic crisis world. And I mean, it's mirrored, if you like, in the doll, in a way. You know, where you used to have the two big blocks that dominated everything and one smaller system. Now you have one one smaller party. Now you have, uh, you know, uh, you have the two big blocks much reduced. And that space has been filled by an array of individuals and small parties. So, I mean, if, if, if people are find the European Parliament unfamiliar to them in terms of, you know, all, all the, the small parties and the shifting alliances... I mean, it's the exact same as what has happened in the doll in a way. Okay, yeah. just for well, just for set my mind at rest because yeah. I'm kind of grappling with this stuff. Yeah, Those okay. three groupings which so you mentioned, mentioned on three. on the right. So there's one which is what you might call, well, the Conservative Party from the UK okay. is probably the most significant party that we know as a component of it. So yeah. a kind of a a, a right of right of centre party, and then there's a Eurosceptic grouping which is traditionally the which UKIP would have been part of. Mm. It's interesting in some ways that I end up viewing these things entirely through the prism of the yeah. UK politics rather yeah. than anywhere else in Europe. That's probably telling enough in itself. And then there's the one that a lot of focus has been on over the last while, which is what we call the, the far right, the radical right, the, uh, represented by Marine Le Pen, yeah. by Salvini in Italy, uh, Geert Wilders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and, and, and Salvini is establishing a new group, another acronym, the Europe, European Alliance of Peoples and Nations. But uh, there's, there's such a blend between these different groups. And in fact, within the Christian Democrats is also Viktor Orban's party, uh, which conceivably is much more like uh, Salvini's groups and all that sort of stuff. Slightly mm. Christian and only a bit democratic. Yeah, yeah, vaguely democratic, I think, at best. Um, so you've got that kind of movement towards the right and they're moving up 5% and we're all aware of this. But there's actually another, there's another movement. There's a kind of a centre radicalism, a centre I couldn't give a F about politics. Uh, and you saw it in the Ukraine. say whatever you want here, it's politics, yeah, it's yeah. podcast. You, can saw, you saw it in the Ukrainian elections where this comedian uh, absolutely dominated the field. So the ALDI group, that kind of liberal and democrat group, which is also increased by about 5%, that includes loads of kind of celebrities and a kind of hodgepodge of people who have kind of emerged into politics from a centrist perspective. Um, so I misunderstood what ALDI was. I thought it was a sort of classically liberal group in the mould of the Free Democrats in Germany, but it's yeah. it's, it's it's broader than that. But, it, it? but yeah, it's kind of a bit vague as well. It's 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 kind of bringing in lots of different people who don't necessarily sit anywhere else, like this kind of Ukrainian guy or whatever. I mean, obviously Ukraine isn't in the European Union, but uh, it includes lots of these people. And in the European Parliament, it's the least cohesive in terms of voting behaviour. So when the MEPs go in and vote in different, partly because it's a none policies, of the above, or neither of neither Fianna Christian Fall Democrats nor Social Democrats, Fianna Fáil is in it, uh, Mark Rutte of the Netherlands is in it, the Liberal Democrats are uh, are in it. And now uh, it appears that... Uh, Mark well, those Mark's are all, in their own different ways, relatively coherent political organisations, to be fair. Mark Rutte is the Prime Minister of the Netherlands. The Liberal Democrats, we know what they stand for. Uh, whether they stand for exactly what Fianna Fáil stand for is maybe another matter. But Fianna Fáil seem like it's 
fits perfectly in this group. You know, it's a bit of what you're having yourself. You know, at any given time, you can fit your mold to whatever center you right, center right, center right, center right, center right, right to right, the left. Yeah, so yeah. you kind of you know look at it from any perspective. So but in this splintering, Kevin, which Pat describes, that Aldi group because it's a representative of yeah. splinters in a way, that's benefiting. You expect that to, to well, yeah, hold its it, own or increase? It depends on what way things go. So uh, the selected um, Spitzen candidate, so the person that the Christian Democrats want to be uh, the head of the commission is Manfred Weber. He wants to move towards the right. He's trying to appeal to the kind of centre right. He's talking about more... Um, it, he announced the idea of having 10,000 more border uh, guards around the European Union. He's talked about um, no no further enlargement of the European Union. So he's trying to appeal to that side. But there probably isn't a coalition there. There's probably a a coalition between, as we say, the socialists, this liberal hodgepodge group and the kind of Christian Democrats. And uh, I've heard, uh, because Macron, as you say, is going to be a key figure in this, I've heard that instead of the currently chosen uh, candidate Manfred Weber that people like Christian Lagarde might actually start coming and maybe she might be or uh, our old friend Barnier Michelle Barnier is, or Michelle Barnier yeah, is one well. of the names that's uh, that's yeah. touted about Weber is not I think in Brussels considered to be a the very team. strong candidate for the presidency of the commission but ultimately that appointment would be made at council level and especially so if there's no apparent majority in the uh, in the parliament, which I suppose brings us back to the the, the point of the reports that we started off discussing, which yeah. is uh, the top line of which seemed to me to be that the anti EU parties are likely uh, uh, Kevin Study finds to be the second largest group in uh, in the new parliament, which brings about I think all sorts of potential for disruption of the Parliament's business and the wider EU's business. But can you define them as a group? Because the other element which we haven't referred to yet is the uh, is the hard left, as some people call it, or the left beyond, the, the, the parties to the left of the Social Democrats. Yeah. So, um, I mean... So we had Claire Daly in last week and yeah. she would be affiliated with the, with the Nordic Greens. Yeah, the, the uh, left, yeah. But, and Sinn Féin are also affiliated yeah. with them. Um, uh, Ming Flanagan is also affiliated yeah. with them. So Nordic Greens might be quite well represented coming out of Ireland. Uh, might be well. It's certainly, I w- uh, certainly our prediction shows that they would be uh, well represented in in Ireland. Uh, we predict them to increase their share in the European Parliament from seven to eight, uh, and the Greens to go from seven to seven to basically stay the same as they were. Now they'll have some influence if um, you know. One one example, in fact, is uh, the recent copyright uh, article thirteen. This idea of the kind of you know the famous the EU is banning memes now uh, uh, piece of legislation quite it, controversial on the internet anyway. Yeah, Not before time. Um, so it's the the notion is that that piece of legislation actually in this new parliament wouldn't actually pass, and that's a piece of legislation that was opposed by uh, that particular left group. So, um, so they're significant, but you're characterising them as part of a group which also includes the Salvinis of this world as well, with whom they don't really they have don't that have much in common. No, no. I think Claire Daly last thing- week was explicitly saying that her mission in going to the European Parliament was to take the fight to those type of groups. She was saying, elect me and Mick Wallace to take on the far right. So they will be directly against those other forces in the European Parliament. Yes, but what the significance of their increased size, I think, is not so much that they will agree on positive proposals, but that they may agree on things that they are against and they will block things. Absolutely. What sort of things would those those be? Well, I mean, 
they, budget. I mean, hey, the commission. Yeah, like that. The, the, those two things in particular. The, the, the budget has to be agreed by a majority. Um, I don't know where that majority comes from now. I mean, if, if you, you need to have Aldi or the Greens as well. Um, undoubtedly, they're almost as Eurosceptic as the kind of far-right groups we spoke about. Well, the Nordic right? Greens are, but the, but the Greens aren't. The so, for example, the, the, the traditional and the Greens, Greens are moving towards so a long. kind of a pro-European. So there is a there is still a centrist majority here. If you define the centrists as people who are generally for running the EU in a fairly competent manner along oh, yeah. the lines as, as set out between the European People's Party, Aldi, the Socialists, the Greens, yeah. and uh, and on March, for example, and probably a couple of others. Yeah, yeah, in turn, yeah, that that's absolutely true. And and up to now, you've had uh, different blocks uh, pushing different uh, pieces of legislation through. You've had the kind of right, the Christian Democrats, and those the right of them, and this liberal group pushing through uh, policies and legislation on the internal market. You've had a coalition of Aldi and the left and the socialists pushing through policies on the environment. And those two things are the two kind of policies that seem to uh, two pieces of legislation that kind of emerge from the European Union most consistently because there are those blocks. Those blocks now are moving from uh, 40 to 50 percent down to around 33 percent. So the idea of uh, additional policies coming out of the European Union, uh, it's going to be much harder. And in fact, it's actually irrelevant of whether the UK are in it or not. Well, I meant to ask you about that because obviously obviously the UK are going to be in and uh, it's fairly irrelevant, not entirely irrelevant, is it? For example, the socialists will do a good bit better in terms of their proportion if there's an influx of Labour MEPs. Yes, yeah, sorry. I mean, in, in terms of the, the relative difference, you're talking about 2 or 3% in relation to the Socialists or the uh, Christian Democrats. But the the net total of that grand coalition doesn't really change okay. because uh, even if Labour have a couple of uh, additional uh, MEPs, it's as a proportion, they are massively different from the rest of the parliament. I, I, I suspect that some of the people listening to this will say, you know, Fiuk mentioned the Spitzen candidate, you know, which is a kind of a classic old school European fit up, you know, between um, the, establish- the, establish- the establishment, the establishment <laughs> elites, you know, with the classic kind of smoke filled rooms, kind of an exercise. And they might say, well, actually, we do need some uh, broader range of parties in there to reflect the full range of views across Europe, and we do need people to shake it up and say, no, you can't do this deal behind closed doors. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the European Parliament is 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 meant to elect this bits and candidates. But what, on what level do people engage with that? Like, on what level are people in the European Parliament elections in Ireland going out voting for Fine Gael, thinking they're voting for Manfred Weber? Really? In Abbey Field, they like, speak of little else. <laughs> probably nil. Like, I did a bit a piece for Saturday's paper in which I kind of tried to tease out, will these be different elections now? <clears throat> And most people I spoke to obviously saying it's too early to tell, but their initial reaction was no. Fine Gael would like it to be a different election because their posters say we are the party of Europe. They want it to be better. They're one of the few parties who do that. Though. Yeah, they're one of the few. Most of the people I spoke to said no, that they still believe that it would be <clears throat> a second order election. In the hierarchy of elections, as one person put it to me, the general comes first, the local comes second, the European third and the presidential fourth. The question is whether the European comes on a par with the locals now. Is that there any be- sense at all that whatever about them overtaking the local elections, that that Brexit and increased powers of the Parliament over the last ten years, it kinda of, and to some extent an increased visibility of the of the mechanisms of the Parliament might shift up the well, way but, that people people think about the importance of the Well these, Regina Doherty's the director of elections for Fine Gael, I asked her this and she said there is an increasing awareness that it's a proper parliament. There's no kind of fixed idea of what it does or how it could affect the Spitzen candidate or anything like that. They just have this sense that oh it's it, it's it's a proper institution now. Whereas before it was a bit of a joke. 
But it, I kind of spoke to a few people who've been out canvassing in the last few weeks and they were saying that, you know, the workings of the European Union aren't really featuring in canvas conversation. Yes, Brexit comes up, but it's almost like the weather. You know, you talk about the weather, you talk about something else, and go, well, Brexit's really bad, isn't it? But there was no sense that was going to inform the way people vote. Now, that, of course, is before the election proper kicks off. The election itself, or the campaign itself, may change that. But as of now, there's no big indication that this is being treated any differently by the electorate at large. Um, and even if it is, the most you can hope for is that people see it on a par with the local elections. Kevin, you make the point in this report that uh, not only is there a shift towards a more Eurosceptic position because of the rise of these parties of the right and left, but even within the existing parties, there's a slight there's a slight tilt in that direction. Too. Yeah, um, and that's a piece that actually uh, Professor Michael Marsh was covering. And this within there's a defrag, there's within those groups is a kind of inconsistency, and it's more difficult. Uh, it's going to be more difficult for the rapporteurs who who manage the policies to actually try to figure out what are the coalitions that they can rely on when they when they try and create policies. There's definitely uh, a change. Just on uh, on Fiek's point, uh, I think one of the issues is the big issues in the European Parliament that actually might relate to us, the things like neutrality, which I assume Claire Daly is probably going to um, push on, um, the digital tax, which which is very much an issue that will affect us, are probably not the number one and two issues, even though they're big issues, mm-hmm. probably not the one or two two issues for, for ordinary people. They're still thinking about housing and how can they relate that housing problem with mm-hmm. the European Parliament and it could be interesting to see the arguments candidates make, like, will it be, you know, Mark Durkin's back to backstop, which has already kind of been laughed at uh, as, a, as a pitch, but like, will it be, I'll go to Europe to fight for Dublin or Munster or Cork or Donegal or whatever and bring European funds home? That's what the election will probably be about, rather than, as you say, digital tax and issues like that that the Parliament actually decides. Isn't the, uh, isn't, isn't the reality, though, um, Pat, that Emmanuel Macron's grand vision for a Europe that moves forward towards a a bright federalist future is unlikely to be delivered by this particular parliament as Kevin paints the shape of it there. Well, in, in on one look, you, you would say so because as the report shows, the next parliament uh, as a whole is likely to be more Eurosceptic, uh, slightly more right-wing, will have more nationalists in it, um, I suppose, than uh, than previously. On the other hand, I think the change, in the, 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 paradoxically, if you like, the growth of the anti-EU bloc in the EU Parliament, and this, again, was one of the points made in the report, will force the pro-EU blocs to cooperate more closely. And as long as they have a majority in the parliament, which they which will, they, will, which have, they yeah. will have, then if they can agree on ways forward and on inter- integrationist policies, then they have the numbers to get them through. But the engine will still remain, I think, uh, of, of that. And certainly the, 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 the cockpit of that of that direction will be offered from the European Council. And that's why, you know, the great, as in the the, the, the body of heads of government, where, you know, most of the business and certainly all the business in uh, in terms of Brexit has been has been done. So, you know, I think there are bigger questions about the next Euro- European Parliament, about who replaces 
Angela Merkel as the effective leader of the European Council. Who's going to be the next president of the European Council? Who's going to be the next president of the Commission? And what agenda they have, that will be, I think, as important. So despite what I'm saying about the European Parliament being a more significant body than it used to be and more like a real parliament, is the reality still that the power doesn't reside there? The most important power, the most important European institutions is the European Council. This was a balance, I think, that was struck right back at the, uh, at the, Treaty, of, the Treaty of Nice. It was a victory for the intergovernmentalists. The most important centre of power is the European Council. The, he- the heads of government that meet on a regular basis uh, to decide on the direction, or, or direction of Europe, what Europe should do. The second most important institution is the European Commission, which runs the day-to-day business of the Union. And the third most important institution, by some distance third, is the European Parliament. So Felix's right, Kevin, when he says that uh, Irish voters view this as a third-order election. They're right to view it as a third-order election because it's the third order of power in the European Union. I um, I think, right, that I, I think that the European Parliament has become increasingly important uh, I think that's partly this fragmentation and this polarisation, as, as Palaluza, which I'd agree with, the idea that we're probably going to have this emerging pro-European and anti-European party system in, in the European Parliament. And that will probably define things. I think that actually will become increasingly important as it becomes harder to... I mean, legally, to pass any legislation, it has to pass the European Parliament as well as the Council. I think the reason why the Parliament hasn't been that important is because it's been actually relatively easy to pass legislation because of this grand coalition and because the leaders of the council have actually been the leaders of the parties that kind of dominate that those coalitions. But that pro-European co- coalition is very unlikely, it seems to me, to be captured by a really integrationist, federalist approach because it's it's too broad a coalition. There are too many people within Aldi, for example, and I'm sure within some of the other parties uh, who, who, you know, I can't imagine the Greens are too keen to be signing up to a European defence force, for example. Yeah, that's... that's and if the risk is if you do it... That split you talk about, Kevin, tips you other way at the next European parliamentary elections. So if this uneasy coalition of people who want to see the European function correctly and properly, but if you go down a federalist route, then the risk is that you're in the minority at the next one because people just react badly to that. I mean, isn't the other fact about European elections, historically previous ones, is that because people don't think their vote has as much effect as it may have in other elections, they take a risk, well, they yeah. use it as a protest vote, they go to a further extreme than they might consider if they were elected to their own national parliament. Yeah, or, or the Greens. I mean, as well, the Greens typically do relatively well in these sorts of elections. Yeah, uh, absolutely. That That's quite, that's certainly uh, quite possible that, that people will just issue a protest vote in favour of a party. I mean, you see it in the UK. I mean, the way the extent to which people were voting for UKIP well before UKIP were actually a national uh, force uh, in European Parliament. You couldn't elections. get an MP elected in Westminster, yet they could get MEPs elected all over Britain. All over you know? the book, yeah. And turnouts historically very low for these elections across Europe. We're kind of a slight outlier turnout, slightly higher here for yeah. European parties, probably because, because on the same... The, the yeah, it's on the same day as the local <laughs> elections. So people go out to vote for the locals and vote for the Europeans as well. It's, it would be interesting to see if we had a standalone European election, would turnout be much more reflective of the European norm and lower than it usually is here? I mean, we've a better... We've a, a more... Um, healthier democracy than a lot of the countries in the European Union. Slovakia, I think the turnout was 13% and they elect some fairly hard right uh, politicians uh, uh, to their parliament. Um, like Taken quite seriously initially though. 
I was reading about it. They, they have relatively okay. high turnout in Italy and they seem to be quite but engaged with it for some reason. one of the more well, interesting European parliaments that if you have these debates, people have a, a increased awareness of these kind of competing forces in the parliament and then realise, oh, I better vote for these elections well, the next time out. The most Eurosceptic country now in the European Union is, well, I think, as I saw from Eurobrom, is Italy now. But isn't that one of the key dynamics which has changed and even our traditional vision of what the far right was, which was traditionally led by first Jean-Marie Le Pen and yeah. now by Marine Le Pen and they were the most successful party in a large country yeah. in Europe but now Salvini is in government and very much seems to be the driving force behind and this. and that and and the fact that they're in government leads to an idea that there's an idea that because they've been in government in a lot of different countries and they've been thinking more seriously about policies that there's a there's a now more cohesive idea of what they're actually in favor of and what is that Harder borders, I guess. I mean, anti-immigration. Immigration, I mean, we don't talk about it as much in Ireland because it's not as big an issue. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, I was talking to people and asking people, so what will this mean in relation to the digital tax and all this stuff? And it is very important, but it's migration is the big issue for for these countries. And one of the questions that always arises about hard nationalist parties of the hard right is, by definition, by their own self-definition, their primary interest is in protecting their own nation and making their nation uh, better than other nations. Yeah. And how does how how do coalitions and alliances with similar hard right parties, whose primary mission is to is to celebrate and to and to advance the interests of their own nation? Surely there's a there's there's a potential problem there, you know. I, I mean, conceivably, but I guess we're seeing the development of a party system. If you go back to the development of the first American uh, parliamentary system started out with the kind of federalists and it moves to Republican Democrats who are all about state rights, essentially. They're all about their individual states. And they eventually wiped out the federalists and then split into Republicans and Democrats. I mean, I don't know, it might, it might be... It so might you think the traditional left-right divide is, is going to be replaced by a sort of a... And a by that, that kind of states' yeah, rights divide. Because ah, yes. <clears throat> but one of the crucial <laughs> victories for the early yeah, proponents of the uh, of a single country rather than a group of countries in the United States yeah. was uh, the the federal federalizing of the uh, of the debt by Alexander Hamilton. I know all about this at the moment because my uh, daughter insists on playing the soundtrack from Hamilton the Musical. Funny enough, <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> but but the, 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 fe- the, the creation of a central treasury, you know, the guarantee that, that assumed all the state's debts uh, and that was a crucial early victory in the forging of, uh, of a single, uh, of a single it nation. generated some great songs as well. Uh, well, indeed. But, um, uh, but that, Funnily enough, is one of the things yeah. that Emmanuel Macron wants to talk about uh, a European, uh, you know, a central European treasury for the Eurozone. It's one of the things that's being resisted, not least uh, in this country. So at the heart of that, it seems to me, without getting too apocalyptic about it, that is the existential question at the heart of this whole bloody process. Is isn't it a it? single? Is it a... Well, hmm. Is I it mean, a federal Europe? Is it a union? Yeah, I, you know, yeah. I, I, is it? I mean, people wonder: is this a good thing or a bad thing? That you know, people will start to engage in European politics as a result. Maybe it'll be a healthier democracy if people are looking at it. Well, do you want more or less? You know? that, that's not particularly a new thing, though. Challenge to the debate between no, it's always been from the very start. Like, yeah. well, what's it for, and where's it going? Yeah, so it's just yeah. more. It's just intense. It's on a more intense level now. But people who kind of question the fundamentals of the European Union, where everybody else was kind of more happy with the union being in the union and debating whether there should be a move towards integration or not, this is now a bit more existential, as you say. Well, it becomes a more pointed question because of the euro crises, which haven't actually gone away and are underlying everything. And because of Brexit. Yeah. You could argue that both those are related to some yeah. extent as well. Uh, and, and, you know, the fact that uh, how many times 
you know, do we discuss these issues? We talk about European politics in in this studio compared to what you know we might have done five years ago or uh, or ten years ago. You know, you, Europe and European politics is now much more central mm-hmm. part of our political discourse. Whether well, listeners are interested in it, of course, is another matter. But it is oh, a much, the, number, the numbers show they are. Much, <laughs> it's a much more central part of our political ten of our span. national political discourse uh, the, now. Yeah. The ten years span takes in the bailout in Brexit when you've never had. Yeah. European politics directly affecting domestic politics to such an extent. I think that is, and Irish voters have probably seen, as they would see it, a negative side of Europe. Most Irish voters, you know, slightly resent the the bailout to a certain extent, although I'll, a lot of them don't. Ways, doesn't it? Cause cause the, it cuts the Brexit both, yeah. experience. It cuts both ways, and the Brexit has experience has to feel kind more of positive. positive. So yeah. it's interesting in that ten year span, you have seen the European Union, the Apple tax, as well, yeah, the Apple tax. Well, so it's a much more kind of you know relevant experience for many people now. So what's going to happen in the European elections here, Fiac? Um <clears throat> Dublin, if it's... Let's just operate in the base that it's a four-seater in Dublin and a five-seater in Ireland South. I think you're going to have one Fine Gael, one Fianna Fáil, one Sinn Féin and one Independent and the money is on Claire Daly at the moment. Down South, I think people would largely say that Fine Gael will hold two seats in a five-seater. It's probably Sean Kelly and... Deirdre Clune, Fianna Fáil will take a seat with Billy Kelleher. That's three. Sinn Féin should hold a seat with Lee and Rita. Like, I know Sinn Féin aren't doing well at the moment, but you look back in 2014, the Whopper first preference votes yeah. they got at that time, they would need to fall by a substantial amount to lose seats. She bombed at the presidential she election. Did. Though, she did. And, and she absolutely interestingly, did. she didn't do well in her own area in the presidential election, which is a bit of an alarm bell, I think, yeah. for Sinn Féin. But it would have to be a huge cratering of their support. And then you would have to say that... Um, if you look at the fifth seat, there'll be space for an independent. So if you take it as two Fine Gael, one Fianna Fáil, one Sinn Féin, and it is who who is that independent? And, you know, some people in the South are saying Mick Wallace has quite a good chance. Uh, his main task would seem to be that cluster of candidates around the South East, who comes out on top? So you have, like, on first preference, you have Grace O'Sullivan, who people are speaking very highly of. That's the Green candidate. The Green candidate. She's a bit of a track record. So you have Grace O'Sullivan, Andrew Doyle for Fine Gael, Malcolm Byrne for Fianna Fáil, you have Mick Wallace. Whoever manages to come out of that fight would probably take the fifth seat. Up north, four-seater. Fine Gael will hold one, they won't get a second. Fianna Fáil should take one, although there are doubts again over the wisdom of a two-candidate strategy. They lost a seat up there the last, the last time. time there are now serious doubts in the party about the wisdom of doing this again because it's not going very well. Sinn Féin, Matt Carthy should hold the seat. He's well-regarded across all parties as a good operator, although he'll probably come into the doll months after the European Parliamentary elections and then it's the independency again Ming Flanagan or Peter Casey but again Ming's first preference vote the last time was absolutely massive and he would again would have to drop a serious amount to lose that seat so I think at the moment you'd have to say Ming So going by um, those calculations um, four of Ireland's MEPs will be members of the Nordic Greens as, as is the case at the moment Yeah Who knew we were so Nordic Green in this country? <laughs> I knew we were Nordic. I wasn't aware we were so green. Yeah, yeah. Um, I uh, I had similar numbers when five. I was looking at this. Three yeah. Sinn Féin. Well, Sinn Féin. I beg your pardon, three Sinn Féin, Claire Daly and, and Claire Daly. Claire Daly. So it'll be five. We have four now. And it'll be up to four from five. So be I think the Dublin battle is is impossible. I mean, if you put if you brought that down to three seats, which I isn't think it's going to be... more likely, right? of course, that the UK would yeah. participate in the elections and therefore it's a three-seater it's a three in seater Dublin and a yeah. four-seater mm. in Ireland South, which will be even tighter. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, Kevin, you were going to say... Well, uh, the, the, the Dublin, uh, if it's a three-seater, exactly, that's really hard to tell. Yeah. Um, I think you've got Francis Fitzgerald, I think Claire Daly will actually mm. get in. And then... Because she's the most high-profile candidate of... You would have to assume in every constituency there will be one independent anti-establishment, anti-establishment well, candidate. And there were, because there always has been. Hasn't the thing about Dublin yeah. is... The, 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 
the briefing about Dublin already is that Fianna Fáilers are saying, oh, watch the vote share in Dublin in Fine Gael because they're expected to be weak. Like if you look at consistent polling, has Fine Gael around 36, 37% in, in Dublin. That's consistent over a range of polls now. But the I don't, early indications are that France Fitzgerald and Mark Durkin combined will not reach that first preference share. So that'll be kind of one thing to hear after election. But the interesting thing is, if it is a three-seater, do Fianna Fáil take one of those immediate seats? And it'd be a big blow for them if they didn't. Well, you see, this is the thing. So I was looking at that. I think there has to be two left-wing and of the three mm. seats in Dublin. That's the problem. I don't think you can get a Fianna Fáil and a Fine Gael mm. uh, elected and have one. Because last time, I was looking at this before, that uh, Nessa Childers plus the Labour Party plus the Green Party were 30% in the last election. And then People for Profit and the Socialist Party were 15.3. So that was 453 for all that kind of left and uh, liberal kind of parties on first preference. And Sinn Féin got what in Dublin? Sorry, and Sinn Féin Sinn as Sinn well. Sinn Féin got nearly 20-odd percent yes, first preference votes in Dublin. 75% was all like left-wing. Like, so we have such an array of left-wing candidates in Dublin this time. Like, it's and if you look massive. at that uh, on the same day... Uh, Dublin City Council, mm. one of the local authorities, elected a vast left-wing yeah. majority on the uh, on the City Council. Though that was in 2014, and coming at the, the end of five years of austerity after a huge, as Fiat says, a water charges protest. So the uh, political atmosphere is different. I, I think maybe yeah. 2009 might be more instructive. And even 2009, Fianna Fáil lost at a European Parliament, didn't take a seat in the European Parliament. That was Joe Higgins who took that seat at the time. So that might be a more comparable election, I think, to this one. But I think your point, Kevin, is that there's, a, there's going to be a lot of uh, transfers floating around there yeah. in a long a long night, probably, a long count. And, and in not, not many of those transfers oh, are there wait. for Barry Andrews <laughs> or Francis Fitzgerald. No, I, I, the Greens, I think this is why I often think the Greens, because the Greens typically do very well, because they tend to get... Both Nobody sides hates from them. the hard left <laughs> and the kind of centre, kind of liberal left, mm. that kind of converge in there. So if Karen Cuff, let's say, stays just ahead, gets a d- decent enough first preference, then I think he could be the surprise. Maybe I want to ask you guys about polls because we haven't had an Irish Times poll in a while. I hope we're going to have one in a while before in advance of the election. I'm going to, yeah, so I'll put my stick my neck out and suspect that we will have one. But there were two uh, in the weekend newspapers last weekend, Fiac, and yeah. If you were a member of Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael and you looked at them, what would you make of them? Because the disparity between them was enormous. I was going to just chat to people in both parties over the weekend and I, both parties were effectively saying split the difference, that they weren't taking either poll very seriously. Right. Just to remind our listeners, what, what the, the Red Sea poll had a 10-point gap between Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil. I think it was 33-23, if I'm right in that. And then for the first time ever, the B&A poll for Sunday Times had Fianna Fáil ahead of Fine Gael. Uh, in vote share and it was a huge discrepancy and the funny thing was they were released within about a half an hour of each other on Saturday mm. evening like the Red Sea poll came out and someone in Fine Gael said you know that dart song the, 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 the one, <laughs> if anyone knows the dart song I'm not going to do it here now like, <laughs> celebrating like this is Mouncey right now and then like you know half an hour later he <laughs> goes oh we better put that on pause you know <laughs> but uh, I think most people would the, the message you hear back was people poo-pooing both polls and they always all say our polls are much better so you have to kind of take that with a, with a caveat. But the funny thing is, Fianna Fáil historically always put much more store in Red Sea in the last all and used to wag the finger at everybody else and say, oh, you're going to pay attention to Red Sea. But not, not saying it now. How, how do we account for... Let's ask the poster. How do we account for that level of disparity? I'm not asking you because I know you have, you know, you're inter- you're, you're involved in a polling company as well. But yeah. just what what accounts more generally for that range for of disparity, which is well outside 
what people normally account for is the margin of error. Well, yeah, the, the, I think I often think the margin of error as a term is a bit of a misnomer because the the the, the sampling method that's just like how people pick who's in the poll is the most important thing. And so perhaps if one poll is done on the doors, how do they pick who's on the doors if one's done on the phones? How do they kind of randomly select the kind of people? And there's a there's lots of different ways to do that. You can you, there's, you can do th- those things in a very cheap way. You can do it in a very expensive way. You know, you can put, you can drop people in lots of different locations, uh, knocking on loads of different doors. You can use the same kind of batch of telephone numbers that you always use because they always answer the phones or whatever it might be. So you can have different ways and, uh, one of the things in this poll was that I think Red Sea asked um, uh, in relation to the local and European elections, mm-hmm. and I think BNA just did a normal general election. And like I get maybe maybe uh, the opposite of what you're saying, of what Fiek was saying in relation to uh, Fianna Fáil, that perhaps Fianna Gael are actually doing better in the context of the European mm-hmm. than their national figure. Maybe maybe the, maybe there's a convergence in the national figures, but actually. Maybe because they've marked Durkin, he's kind of a more... And, and, and bear in mind that one thing that all the polls, uh, are, except the ones immediately before an election, suffer from, uh, or one disadvantage they suffer from, is that the question that voters are asked when they go into the polling booth is not, are you going to vote for Fianna Fáil or for Fianna Gael or for Labour or for Sinn Féin? It's, are you going to vote for this named Fianna Fáil candidate? Are you going to vote for Barry Andrews? Or are you going to vote for Francis Fitzgerald? Or are you going to to vote for uh, for, for whoever? And that is actually uh, a different question. Sure, that's particularly noteworthy, I think, in the European elections, looking at those numbers, where there are kind of big, significant figures who have brand names, like Elisa Flanagan, and, and they just call oh, oh, it as of I think, think of the length of the ballot paper. It's like, mm. I know that person, I know that person, I'm aware of that person's reputation. Like, it's all about name, the European parliamentary elections. So when we poll, as we will do in a couple of weeks, what we will do is we will poll the individual constituencies the three individual constituencies individually and we will do it with ballot papers that have the candidates on them and we hope that that will give us uh, a more accurate read of people's actual voting intentions. Oh, I can't wait. That's Uh, have a good time. And the the risky thing with that sometimes is that when people see, oh, this person's doing well, you know, it kind of changes the dynamic. Classic example was the last general election was when the Indoded constituency polls Exactly. And for the general election, and they had a screaming headline on, I think it was a Saturday splash. It's a great story that Joan Burton was going to lose her seat. And then some people at Dublin West went, oh, you know, and it was this big sympathy rush saved back her to her and saved yeah. her seat. Oh, and they, the campaign it was formed around that. Yeah, event. yeah, it was like, you know, this big thing where she's going to lose her seat and then she held on, you know. Now, Fiat, we're, we're, we're talking here, obviously, about. Actually, I must say before we did it, the, yeah. the, 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 talking to people in both parties over the weekend, they're, uh, they have largely had the view for some time that. Fine Gael is 30-ish, maybe a bit more. Fianna Fáil is 20, mid-20s, late-20s, and that hasn't changed, although okay. Fianna Fáilers believe that Fine Gael is now a bit dip below 30. They're, they still say they're behind them somewhat by about 2 or 3-4%, but they think that Fine Gael has dropped sub-30. That's a margin you could overtake in an election campaign. That's what they would say, and as Pat says, their big argument is all about our candidates, and our candidates will see us overline. That's the big Fianna Fáil kind of position that we're behind the national polls. National polls never count for the candidates and the candidates is what will get us And, uh, and on that very point of a general election campaign, uh, the man to my right, Mr Leahy, has made the point again and again over the last year or so that the way that Irish politics is configured now is that there are two separate processes in the choosing of a government. One is 
the people electing their representatives and the second one is the negotiations which take place leading to the formation of some kind of a government. And you had a very interesting story this week about some of the, uh, I suppose, the wooing mm-hmm. um, might be the word, some of the um, the blind dates which have been going on. The yeah, there was a discussion. Restaurant meals. Floor play. Floor play. I don't want to think about it that way. Thank you. You'll no. often hear in the UK uh, reference to a political cabinet from a tradition of single party government where the cabinet will discuss political matters, matters pertinent to the party. We don't have that here. So what we do have is we have a situation where before the weekly cabinet meeting, Fine ministers will meet on their own, largely to discuss what's going on with the cabinet, but sometimes it kind of digresses and expands into political strategy. It happens every week in government buildings before they went to proper cabinet with the independents. So a couple of weeks ago, I think early April, a discussion started at this meeting about, I think, it was instigated, I think, by Regina Doherty suggesting, I keep reading, I keep hearing about Michal Martin and Brendan Helen having this great relationship and out for dinner and, you know, what are we doing on that score? And this kind of kicked off the discussion, well, what are we doing? And that we need to work on post-election alliances or the, the cabinet specifically was told, well, it depends on who you talk to. As these meetings, people, different people are different things. One person was absolutely adamant to the Taoiseach and his chief of staff, Brian Murphy, made it clear that the cabinet were to go out and make nice with their opposite numbers, particularly in the Labour Party and the Green Party, to make it make the case for a post-election coalition. Uh, some people kind of roof, kind of said that well, <clears throat> the Taoiseach himself hasn't been quite nice to Brendan Howland or Eamon Ryan, so we all we've all been doing this, but he hasn't. But it's kind of an indication, as you say, that it's kind of funny this. <laughs> but the, curious, <laughs> the notion of being sent out to kind of you know nice. sidle up to people at the but coffee like, dock, so, hi, so, did you have a good weekend? Because yeah. 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 someone says, yeah, says, says yes, yeah. you know, now they'll see our guys coming. You know, hello, Alan Kelly, how are you today? I think, you know. Yeah. But um, I suppose the, 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 the real thing about like we've said it for a, a while that the Labour Party, you know. They may not do quite well at the next session. They may do. They may hold their seat count. They may lose seats, but they may be quite powerful in that post-election discussion because if they are successful, I think Eamon Ryan is up for this. You know, combining as a block after the election to form a negotiating block with Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael, they will be hugely important because let's say there's five, six seats between Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil. There may not be maybe a bigger gap. Where they go is crucial because then the balance of power has swung in the direction of either me or Martin or Leo Farragher. Then you will see independence and others follow and the road to majority government. So if you have a dramatic statement a week after the election, yes. has, the rules of the election is clear, yes. to say, here we are, here's this situation, yeah. you've got first mover advantage. Then you become the people in possession that you would get mm. like independence flocking to you. They want a piece of the action as well. So I think what's going to happen is there was, a, there was an awareness among some in Fine Gael that Michal Martin and Brendan Howland have this close-ish relationship. Michal Martin is known to give, I suppose, periodic advice to Howland on how to rebuild the party, ignore the opinion polls, etc., etc., etc. They both pine for that lost Fianna Fáil Labour government of the mid-90s um, that collapsed. They think that was, you know, I've heard both of them say that was a fantastic government, shouldn't have collapsed. So you can see where this is going. Michal Martin sees himself as a social democrat. Brendan Howland clearly is a social democrat. You know, I did an interview with Brendan Howland myself after Christmas where he specifically said that Fianna Fáil's policy offering is more in line with what we would want to introduce after an election than Fine Gael's. They have a problem with this tax cut plan of Leo Varadkar's. And then you have people down the ranks in Labour who will say that they want to go into coalition with Fianna Fáil because they're still quite bruised after what happened in 2011, 2016, that this huge Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael presence in that doll. And the Labour 
that presence was quite big as well, but it was very much a big brother, little brother relationship. They didn't like uh, how it transpired. And the fact that, as they see it, the social issues such as gay marriage, same-sex marriage and abortion are now off the table. They think that a Fianna Fáil Labour government would be a social democratic government in all but name and it will work better than perhaps it may have done in the last 20 years. So Fine Gael, there's now an awareness of this in Fine Gael and they're going to go somewhat out and make belated. noise. Somewhat belatedly, yeah, because someone in Fianna Fáil texted me yesterday when a story ran and said, you know, they're a bit late on the game, aren't they? You know, it's like, God, that they were kind of, you know, poo-pooing the amateurish, uh, amateurish approach of Fine Gael. But I think Fine Gael's position, someone else at that meeting said, the Taoiseach said that the numbers will dictate this. There is a view that they will be so big that they will beat Fianna Fáil to such an extent that they will become the unquestioned senior partners in any government. And I think they say, well, look at our position on climate change, carbon tax. We are quite clear in where we want to go. Fianna Fáil are kind of shimmy-shammying around. We are we have a stronger record in progressive issues, therefore they sh- should come to us. don't think it's that clear-cut because Michal Martin has spent a bit of time, you know, sidling up to Eamon Ryan and to Brendan Howland, and he has clearly said he wants a government of the left, and you can see how that appeals to them. Very, very interesting. Listen, we shouldn't let this podcast go without mentioning the fact that the funeral of Lyra McKee takes place today after her murder by the new IRA in Craigan last Thursday evening. Uh, it's a it's an event which has had huge impact ripples across this country and further afield, Pat, but. Am I being too cynical when I say I see no sign of it having any impact on the political frozen stalemate in Northern Ireland? Slightly. I think you know, the public mood has shifted or is brought to the fore um, a dissatisfaction with politics and with politicians and the continuing stalemate at Stormont uh, in the North. I think that's certainly true. And politicians are, if nothing, uh, if nothing else, receptive to public pressure. However... I get no sense, speaking to people yesterday, I get no sense that there is uh, sufficient pressure or that the mood change amongst the politicians uh, in the North is sufficient to make some or all of them change their positions, which would allow resuscitation of the... um, of the institutions at Stormont. So I think there'll be a lot of fine words today. Uh, Certainly the Irish, and to a lesser extent the British government, are keen to put pressure on the northern parties to at least start exploring again the possibility of resuscitation of the the executive. Aren't the two main party leaders within the dynamics of their own two parties the, the, the incentives and the disincentives to actually take a risk of some sort? Uh, is isn't it, neither the, of them are the disincentives. You're, you're are right there. in that neither of them are in particularly strong positions uh, at the moment. There's local elections next week. There's probably European elections three weeks after that. Sometime after that is likely to be the report of the inquiry into the renewable heat incentive scheme. So there is a number of medium-term roadblocks, which suggests to me and to a number of people in the Irish government that I was speaking to about this yesterday that there is uh, an, an imminent breakthrough uh, in terms of resuscitating Stormont. is unlikely. And a last thought. No Brexit this podcast. Is this going to be the last podcast for a while that we have no Brexit? Is it going to be back on our agenda? Is it coming back or are we in an interregnum now for a while? I would make the bold prediction that next week we will be talking about Brexit again. (laughs) That's something to look forward to. (laughs) Something to look forward to. We will leave it there. Thanks very much to Pat, Kevin and Fiak for coming in today. 
And that's it for today's podcast. Thanks very much to our engineer, JJ Vernon, and to our producer, Jennifer Ryan. And remember that you can subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast provider might be. Please do give us a positive five-star review because it helps to get it out to a broader audience. And you can also find us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. Your views are also very welcome. You can mail me at hlinehan at irishtimes.com or you can usually find me on Twitter. Until the next time, thanks for listening.